0: I think our I think our kids down in Mexico heard heard us singing. I think they heard us singing. That was wonderful. Thank you team. Thank you Megan, our new violinist, and Jordan, our new drummer joining the team. So thankful for for them joining us. Our ushers are handing out pencils if you like one. And we'll get we'll get going here in just a second. So intimate, this lighting is so intimate, I like this. If you're watching online, I want to welcome you to our our live stream, or our our video stream at least. We hope that you'll join us on a Sunday morning here at Maple Valley Church. So i have been in the hot seat for about an hour before the big question came up. I was being grilled by a committee of four liberal presbyters And they kept reminding me repeatedly that they had the authority to decide whether I could pastor in their presbytery, in their region, or not. What authority did I have? Well, not not much. I had 10 years, ordained experience, two postgraduate degrees under my belt, and I had God's plan. I knew that God was calling me to serve a church in Maryland. And so this back and forth was quite interesting. Uh, Rob talked about students facing... uh, criticism in the classroom. You don't expect that from from fellow presbyters. But the big question finally came. It was asked by a little old lady uh, from St. Mark's Presbyterian Church in Silver Spring, Maryland. Shout out to Silver Spring. If you're watching online, I very much doubt they are. (laughs) And she asked me this question. With all the religions in the world, And all the sincere followers of their religions. Do you really believe Jesus Christ is the only way to God? Many today think we are arrogant to believe that that Jesus is the only way. How how can Christians, finite, often at odds with one another, make any claim to knowing truth with a capital T, that, that we know the way? In a pluralistic world, believing Jesus is the only way to God can, can brand you as narrow-minded, as, as bigoted. Even leaders that had dying Christian denomination can put those labels on you. So, so how do we respond? How do we reason for the hope that lies within? And are you ready to respond even this season leading up to Resurrection Sunday to your neighbors, your friends, people that you work with? On the night Jesus was betrayed by Judas into the hands of the religious authorities, uh, they gathered together for the Passover meal that would be the Last Supper. And he told his disciples that he was leaving soon. They'd followed him for three years, and they loved him. He, they, they, they were more than, than friends. They, they were family. They, they had marveled at his teaching. They believed that he was the, the Messiah, sent from God, the fulfillment of, of all the Hebrew scriptures, and yet they didn't understand and they couldn't see and they weren't sure about how he was going to usher in God's kingdom. Now, Before we get to the passage we looked at this, that we're going to look at this morning, a little background of, of what's transpired. The writer John, the, the apostle who was there, first-hand witness, writes in other places that, that it was Jesus was first troubled that, that Jesus was troubled in his in his soul and in his spirit John 12 27 and 13 21 why because because he knew that he would be betrayed and arrested and, and tried and flogged and and crucified and that his father in heaven in that moment would would turn from him he knew all of that and so John records the great troubling spirit that Jesus carried into this final supper yet yet knowing as we do as we're reading along in the text how troubled jesus was look at these first words to his friends he says do not let your hearts be troubled the the disciples were, were also troubled but they were they were troubled in a different way than jesus's trouble Jesus was troubled because of the cosmic battle that he was about to engage in, and that indeed he had been engaged in since his, his baptism to defeat the devil. Uh, but what was the disciples' trouble? Their trouble was they, they didn't have enough faith to believe that, that Jesus uh, in leaving was going to be a good thing, even though they'd heard his teaching for three years. So they were distressed by his words. It was causing them anxiety. It was raising up all kinds of questions in their minds. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then Jesus shares these very familiar words that about preparing rooms in his father's house. Those of you who grew up with the King James Version, they were there were mansions in King James Version, right? <laughs> very comforting to us. We, you might hear that in memorial service for a dearly departed loved one. You may be at graveside or, or in a funeral parlor. Grieving families having this sense that, yes, he goes to prepare a place. But, but believe it or not, Jesus' words here have much more to do with a wedding party than a funeral. You don't believe me. Stay, stick with me here. Let's, let's look at the words again. He says, My father's house has many rooms. This is the NIV. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. He, he comforts his disciples in their distress, in their anxiety, knowing full well what is about to happen for him to finish the mission that his father sent him on. These words of the Lord are for everyday Christian living. They're not reserved to the saddest, most anxious times of our life. They're words to give us confidence that he is the way ultimately all the way home. I mentioned a wedding. Jesus here echoes the first century Jewish engagement ceremony. A Jewish be, uh, marriage or betrothal began uh, this way. There was a betrothal. There was an agreement between uh, two people, uh, a man and a woman, to get married at a future date. It was more than an engagement in our time. Couples get engaged I'm sure a lot got engaged at, at uh, Valentine's Day. And we know of couples, maybe some of you know of couples who've broken off an engagement, and, and that's quite painful, isn't it, when, when we see that happening? But in the first century, for our Jewish culture, it would be illegal to break an engagement. The ceremony involved a covenant between uh, the soon-to-be bride and groom and their parents. And this is how it went. The, the groom would leave his father's house and he'd go to the bride's home, and he'd meet with her father, and they would settle on a price. That's right, ladies. There was a price to be paid. The betrothal is what, uh, what women bring to the, the marriage. But this was, in this first century, it was the groom-to-be settling on a price with the father to buy the daughter. And when the price was agreed upon, technically the marriage was in effect. No more suitors. Like, turn them away at the door. Your dance card is full. But the covenant between these two, oftentimes quite young people, right, would be sealed with the drinking of a cup of wine. And a blessing would be spoken. So imagine the scene, the bride-to-be and, and the young groom, eye to eye, nervous as all get out, as you could imagine, because all the family's there holding a cup of wine. And the groom raises the cup, and they're standing there in uh, the bride's home and says these words, I go to prepare a place for you. And when I prepare it, I will come and take you to where I am that you may be with me always. And then they would drink. And the groom promises then to return he leaves and for the next months or year no one knew for sure because it would be a surprise when he'd come back he prepares their new home and the bride prepares herself for her future husband at the end of the waiting period the groom would return with his best man who proceeds into the town or into the village with a shout here comes the bridegroom come out to meet him Are bells going off for you they certainly would be for the disciples who knew this ceremony. As troubled as they were, they knew this wasn't a funeral that Jesus was alluding to. This was a wedding feast. Now, this wedding feast would take seven days to celebrate. Could you imagine? Those of you who paid for a wedding, can you imagine if it went seven days? And the ceremony, the final ceremony, revolved around the word take. The groom went to the bride's house to take her. That's where we get the, uh, the, the term to, uh, the expression to take a wife. That's where it comes from. We can hear what Jesus is saying here, can't we? He is the bridegroom of God's people, the church, which is known as the bride. On the cross, he paid the ultimate price for us. He drank the cup of wrath for us. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is the forerunner, and he refers to himself in John 3, 29 as the the best man of the groom, announcing his arrival. That Jesus Christ, the king, has made the long journey from his father's home to ours. And he speaks these words of a forever covenant. That he will pay the price for the sins of the world, which is his own life. That he died, yet he rose again from the grave, defeating our greatest enemies and our greatest fears, sin, death, and the devil. We are not to be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Take me at my word. I go to prepare a place for you. And in the meantime, I've got some things that you need to do to prepare for my return. See how these words are not fit for a funeral. What did the angels say to the disciples when they went to the tomb that was empty? Why do you seek the living among the dead? These are words for a feast, like we're about to celebrate. He's gone to prepare a place in his father's house, and in the meantime, the union, the union between parties is guaranteed by whom? The Holy Spirit. Listen. If you could lose your salvation, you would. If you could lose your salvation, you would. Praise God for his faithfulness. He's not going to let you go. If you are saved by the blood of the lamb, brought to new life in him, the Bible says, Romans eight seventeen, you are an adopted child of God. So now the analogy is mixing a bit, but, but you are part of his family. Quote, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we, we may also be glorified with him that we suffer with him a pinch of uncomfortableness to what degree is that suffering for Christ well it's certainly on on the scale somewhere isn't it to be ridiculed or called names and yet he's made a pledge to us a public pledge to be there for us, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. And the king is going to live a very, very long time. Amen? Amen. There it is. Then Jesus says in verse 4, I love this, I think he's teasing out uh, for Thomas and the others. And we'll look at, Tom, uh, we'll look at Philip another time. So I really want to focus on this exchange with, with Thomas. I think he's teasing out that anxiety by saying these words. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Imagine Peter, John, they're silent. I'm not sure. That, I'm, not sure I'm not sure that I know. I just love that, that Thomas is bold enough to, to raise his concern. Like, isn't it wonderful to be in a place, in a church, if you're coming back to church for, after a very long time away or for the first time, that this is a place where, where you can say, well, I, I don't get it. You're all getting it. I, I don't get it. And, and Thomas says that here. He says, Lord, we don't know. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Without Thomas speaking here, Really being honest. We wouldn't have Jesus' most beautiful words here in verse 6. Jesus says, Thomas, my friends, my beloved, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Jesus is the only way to God. If you know me, you know the way. There is only one way to salvation, one way to new life. Jesus is the way, not a way. Not the way technically, but we can find our way around and eventually get there. No, he is the only way. That's not what I'm saying. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus spoke of being the only way, this narrow, exclusive, narrow-minded view, all over the place in Scripture. He says in uh, uh, Matthew seven twenty-one to twenty-seven uh, that he is the object of faith. Was he a liar, or a lunatic, or Lord? He said uh, he is. He has the words of life. John six sixty-three. He promised to those who believe in him that they would have eternal life. John three. 14 to 15 he said he is the gate for the sheep and there's only one gate there's only one narrow way John 10:7 he said he is the bread of life John 6:35 he says he is the resurrection John 11:25 and the apostles got it they picked up on it they didn't have any mincing of words Peter says in his great sermon in Acts 4 he says that Jesus salvation is found in no one else For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The question isn't whether or not this is narrow-minded, but whether or not this claim is true. Jesus is the way, and he also said he is the truth because his words and his actions line up with the the very word and the very action and the very character of of God, the Father. Now, if all truth is relative, then no religion or philosophy can claim exclusivity because something could be true for one person and not true for another. I mean, it depends on your taste. What might be true it might depend on your, your world experience or your point of view or how you were raised. But to say Jesus is Lord is a truth claim. It's not an opinion claim. It's not relative. It's a a claim, when we say truth, it's a claim on reality of what's really real. And it's not dependent on how you feel about it or what you think about it or all the great arguments you can come up. It's either true or it's not true. Tolerating different points of view doesn't mean that you give up truth claims. It doesn't harden you to be able to listen and learn and respect those around you. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and life. When he says, I am the life, he says he is the way to eternal life. He's saying he is the source of right relationship with our creator. Do you believe that to be true or not? That's what we need to wrestle with. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have classes. That's why we are doing this life together. And so back to that conversation when that that dear saint asked me, and I'll just say it with even more inflection so you kind of get where she's coming from, because I I knew her for seven years, and I'm pretty sure I kind of know where she stands on this question. With all the religions in the world and all the sincere followers of their religions, do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the only, way to god oh she wanted me to say the right answer she wanted me to say no but i said yes because jesus when he went on to say there is no he said no one comes to the father except through me he was dead serious i I told the committee jesus eliminated all other possibilities or, or options. I said this isn't a, a, a philosophy at, at odds with other philosophies that we could sit here and, and, and debate. It's a spiritual reality confirmed by, by God's revelation. And so that gets to the whole conversation about what is truth and what is God's word and is it God's revelation or is it, is it just written by, by people long ago, fanciful stories. And we'll talk about that next week. And so really I had to say, not with any animosity, just a quiet confidence Yes, yes, I believe that He is the only way. And I found myself witnessing to a bunch of Presbyterians, which is kind of ironic because my church, my previous church, was made up. This is a little aside about 40% of our previous uh, congregation were made up of West Africans, people from Ghana, Cameroon, Nigeria, and alike. And they found a Presbyterian church in Germantown, Maryland because they knew. A hundred years ago, it was Presbyterians that brought the gospel to West Africa. So, if you want to find a church that preaches the gospel, find a Presbyterian church when you come to America. And they came to our door. A person needs to come to Jesus Himself if he or she wants to be saved, to know God more deeply, to uh, to love others more completely, to live life more fully. He is the only way. There are no other options. That's the message of this church, the message of the gospel. This text here, 2 Corinthians 5 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, to us, the church, the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, entrusting to us this message of of judgment, of retribution. Have I told you so? Of, of self righteousness? No, what's the message? The message of, of reconciliation. So Jesus comforted his troubled disciples by speaking in a way with, with an illustration that would, would touch their heart, kind of pull their heart closer to his. And also, he reasoned with them in the conversation following with, with Thomas and, and Philip and, and alike. If Jesus is the only way, then how we respond isn't simply an intellectual argument, as if we are in the hot seat, or as if you're in the hot seat when you're having a conversation with a co-worker or, or a neighbor, or you get a knock at the door and someone's inviting you to their services, or or in the classroom. It is to be a conversation with heart and mind and soul engaged. But to say that there are other ways to entertain that to, to lighten it up and back off for the sake of making people feel comfortable. For the sake of not losing face and not having, this is getting awkward, okay, I'll just keep nodding because I know they're sharing their opinion and I don't share that opinion, but it's their opinion. I want. Friends, it's, it's to do a disservice. You're doing a disservice to that individual and your relationship with the Lord. If Jesus is the only way, we must be courageous. We must not flinch from telling others, yes, I believe Jesus is the only way, even if that means we're rejected. If Jesus is the only way, we must be confident, not not arrogant, but confident, have a quiet confidence in the revelation of God and and what he's he's done uh, throughout human history, what he's done in 2,000 years history of the church, what he's done in your life, the evidence of, of the resurrection. And if Jesus is the only way, I'm betting my life on it. Are you? We need to have confidence. We need to have courage. courage. But we also need to have contentment. Psalm 36 says this, and I'll close with this. He says, uh, the psalmist says, of those who know God, but they feast, quote, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Isn't that beautiful? We're about to do that here. That we're about to feast and delight and be refreshed at a table that is more than a symbol. The Christ is present here in this room. This is the kingdom. That he's ushered in. This is a foretaste of what's to come. We're to have confidence because of his love. That you know him, and because you know Jesus, you have seen God the Father. We know that there is nothing greater than knowing Christ. So don't be troubled, but don't be shy to speak up either. Be courageous and confident and content, for our joy is in Jesus The only way home to heaven. Let's pray. And as I pray, I'd like to invite our servers, our usher, our our deacons and elders to come down to the front row. Let's let's just take a moment to prepare to pray. God, some of us here need that encouragement. We're troubled, we're anxious that you are the living way. Prepare us, Lord, to proclaim with confidence and and contentment and courage. May our hearts not be troubled anymore by uh, how people might react to us. But Lord, may we uh, have a a troubled heart with the fact that so many people we love and and care about, and even perfect strangers, don't know you. That's why we sent 100 teens and and adults down to Mexico to, to share your love. So God, I pray that you would prepare us for this table. And as we come to this table, just in in this time of prayer, I'd invite you to confess before the Lord. Just confess to Him those things that you've done or left undone, those things that you know need to be rectified, reconciled between yourself and the Lord. Even now, if there's something you've done in your life this week that you know you need to get right before the Lord, in the season of Lent, just need to confess that. Take this time to do just that.